over the last couple of days, I had the chance unexpectedly to have a couple of conversations about infant baptism versus believer's baptism, and it got me thinking about it over the weekend, so I thought I would talk about it a little bit here. Let me just start off by saying it's obviously not an essential component of the gospel. It's not an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, and uh, that's that should be obvious. My my journey on this, I grew up in a Presbyterian home. I was baptized as an infant uh, along with my brothers, and I wouldn't trade growing up in the home I grew up in for anything in all the world. I love my 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 parents. I love my background with Presbyterian doctrine and theology. I still agree with the vast majority of it, uh, even though I am now a Baptist. And, you know, there's a number of people who make the transition from Baptist to Presbyterian. It seems to be more rare that people transition from Presbyterian to Baptist. And so sometimes people look at my story as a little bit of an anomaly. I I, uh, I don't see it that way necessarily, but uh, so I thought I would talk a little, bit, a little bit about how I came to change my mind and also just bring in some text that I think are relevant to this discussion. My experience is that most Baptist friends of mine don't realize how strong the argument is for paedo-baptism or infant baptism. That's my experience. Most Baptists just go, <clears throat> well, obviously we don't baptize infants. When you look at the New Testament, you see adult baptisms and believer baptisms, and what what are you even doing? Why are you even thinking? We're not Catholic. What are you doing here? Um, but th- th- there is a much more sophisticated argument for infant baptism than a lot of times my Baptist friends sometimes realize. But I don't think that the argument for infant baptism is ultimately persuasive. Let me quote uh, our good friend R.C. Sproul, who's in heaven now. This is what R.C. Sproul writes in his study Bible, the Reformation Study Bible, which is a generally very good study Bible. Quote, The New Testament neither explicitly commands infants to be baptized, nor explicitly prohibits them from being baptized. The debate centers on questions surrounding the meaning of baptism and the degree of continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, you may think that, you may not realize that, but that's exactly right. The debate centers on the meaning of baptism and the degree of continuity and discontinuity, sameness and not-sameness, similarity and dissimilarity between the Old and New Covenants. And then he says, um, about one-fourth of the baptisms mentioned in the New Testament indicate that entire households were baptized. About one-fourth of the baptisms mentioned in the New Testament indicate that entire households were baptized. This strongly suggests, though it does not prove, that infants were included among those baptized. So let let me just set this discussion up for a moment. The Presbyterian argument would say something along these lines. That in the Old, you have two covenants in the Bible. Two Testaments, right? Two Testament means covenant. So you got the Old Testament or covenant, and you got the New Testament or covenant. In the Old Covenant... If you were like Abraham in Genesis, what is it, 17, Abraham receives the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, when? Before or after he was a believer? Well, Paul is very clear about this. Genesis is very clear. Paul, uh, Abraham was a believer before he received the sign of circumcision. Before, So Abraham was a believer at least by Genesis 15, 6, although he probably was a believer back in Genesis 12, according to what Hebrews tells us. But either way, Abraham was already a believer before he was circumcised. He was already justified before he was circumcised. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, that's faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's imputation, imputation of righteousness, justification by faith, before he was circumcised. That's Genesis 15, 6. Then Genesis 17, Abraham is commanded to be circumcised as an adult. So, in the Old Covenant, if you are, uh, if you come into the covenant people by uh, adult conversion, say you're Rahab and uh, you get converted to Ruth, or, or if you're a man, uh, you're, you're from another group, and you become an Israelite, you convert. And if you're a male, you would receive the covenant sign, which is circumcision, as an adult, as a believer. So the Old Testament affirms believers' circumcision uh, for adults who have not yet uh, received the sign. But what does Genesis 17 say? Eight days after the birth of a son, and with inclusive uh, counting, they count the day you're on and the day you count to, that would be a week. Eight days is 
is a week. You count the day you're in, and then all the days following, the seven days following, that's eight days. So uh, eight days after birth would be one week after you're born, you receive the covenant sign of circumcision. Abraham was commanded to circumcise Isaac, his newborn, and all of his, all, everyone, all of his children. They were circumcised when? A week after they were born, when they were still unbelievers. So in the Old Covenant, you receive the covenant sign when you're not yet even a believer if you are born into a covenant family or into a family with a believing parent. Uh, that's, the way, that's the way that worked. And so R.C. Sproul says, when you see household baptisms in the New Testament, again, he says, about one-fourth of the baptisms mentioned in the New Testament indicate that entire households were baptized. This strongly suggests, though it does not prove, that infants were included among those baptized. Here's the argument. In the Old Covenant, the covenant sign was circumcision. If you were an adult when you were converted to the Jewish faith, to, to, the, to becoming an Israelite, then you would receive the covenant sign as an adult, as a believer, like Abraham. But if you were born into a believing family, if you were born into a covenant family in Israel, guess what? You received the covenant sign. If you're a boy, you received it a week after you were born, long before you had even the ability to believe in, in, in Yahweh, in, in God, in a saving way. So, uh, adults who are converted would would yes they would be they would receive the covenant sign as a, as believers as adults but their children would receive the covenant sign soon after birth because that's how it works and the argument is this from the presbyterian side from the infant baptism side god changed the covenant sign when we entered into the, into the new covenant from a bloody sign like circumcision to a bloodless sign a cleansing sign which is water baptism but god did not change the time at which the sign is to be administered. So yes, circumcision was a bloody sign, baptism is a cleansing sign, they're different signs, but both signs are the signs of their covenants. Circumcision for the old covenant, baptism of the new covenant, and God never explicitly said, hey, we're going to completely change when we apply the covenant sign. No, the assumption is that you keep doing the sign the same way you did in the old covenant, in the new covenant, it's just a different sign now. So what, what do you do? If an adult is converted to faith in Christ, if an adult is converted and they've never been baptized, then they should be baptized as a believer, according to Presbyterians. But if that person gets married and has a child, that child should be baptized soon after birth, which is exactly how it worked in the Old Testament. So the Presbyterian argument hinges it's critically important that it, that it hinges on the continuity, the sameness, or the similarity uh, of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, and I, I frankly think that that's a strong argument. And also, the household baptisms that make up about one in four of the examples of baptism in the New Testament, the household baptisms do seem to apply, at least at a first glance, that it seems like infants were probably included. The dad gets converted and receives the covenant sign as an adult, and then his whole household is baptized on the same day oftentimes. Well, what are the chances that their whole family was converted on the same day? It seems more likely that he's simply giving the sign to his children, whether they're believers or not, whether they're old enough to understand the gospel or not, because that's exactly what Abraham did in Genesis 17 with his household servants and with his son and you know, on and on. So at least on, on the surface, that seems to be a strong argument for infant baptism. Now, I would waffle back and forth on this issue personally in my late teens, uh, I would debate my dad about it. My dad would always kind of beat me in the in the car. I mean, in a very kind way. We would be driving somewhere, and I'd bring it up. I can remember on vacation, and I would be kind of going back and forth with my dad. My dad had some great points to say, and it always kind of brought me back to infant baptism. But that battle went on for quite some time. I listened to other people. Uh, of course, you've got R.C. Sproul, uh, and you've got uh, others as well that you can listen to. Kevin DeYoung has talked about this issue as well. And I still remember, uh, I think it was 2008, it may have been, I don't know, February, I'm not sure the exact time. I couldn't sleep. I was often up late in college, and I had a 2007 iPod. And this is back when your iPod, you had to download stuff directly through a wire onto your iPod to listen to it. There was no streaming stuff off Wi-Fi. And I had, I had loaded up a John Piper sermon on baptism called, I think it's called, How Do Circumcision and Baptism Correspond? How does circumcision and baptism correspond? And I listened to it. Two in the morning, probably, you know, on a school night in my dorm room. And it's funny. I don't know the exact moment I became a Christian. Like, I don't remember the exact moment. I don't know. I can 
I could narrow it down to about a two month period, like, you know, maybe late June through late July, 2003, uh, probably July, 2003, but I don't know the even week I was converted, but I know the very moment I became a Baptist. Uh, I mean, it was like 2 a.m. I don't, I don't know the date, but I mean, I remember, I remember the specific, I can remember sitting in my dorm bed, in my dorm room bed. I remember looking at my clock. It's 2 a.m. right around there. And I remember at that very moment going, oh no, I think I just became a Baptist. Oh no. I, I did not, I wasn't really looking to become a Baptist. I was like, oh no, I think I'm a Baptist. I think I'm a Baptist. What does this mean? You know, I think this probably means I need to get baptized now as a believer. Yikes. What am I going to do? And then, of course, years went by, but several years after that, I don't remember exactly a few years after that, maybe maybe two years or something like that. I don't remember. After that, I was, I, I was baptized as a believer. And um, yeah, so what, what changed my mind? Well, let me give you some arguments to go before the argument that really changed my mind. The, I think these arguments are, are, are significant. So um, let's start in the book of Acts. And if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. Uh, if not, you can just listen. Uh, one verse that gets thrown around sometimes in this conversation is, is the one in Acts chapter 2. And um, this is Peter at the day of Pentecost preaching to the, to the thousands, many of whom were actually involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And 3,000 are converted right on the spot. Just an amazing scene. Listen to this verse that I've heard Lig Duncan, who's Presbyterian, use in argument of infant baptism. This is Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, now here it is, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent and be baptized. Baptism is right here in this text. Then it says this, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. So I've heard Lake Duncan, who's a very respectable Presbyterian guy, uh, argue that this verse teaches or implies infant baptism. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off. To say the promise is for you and for your children seems to say, repent and be baptized, it's for you and your children. That's what it says. Repent and be baptized, it's for you and your children. The promise of the Spirit and all these things is for you and your children. It's a very, as, as Lig, I think, if I remember correctly, Lig Duncan said, this is a very kind of, you know, Old Testament way of talking. I don't know if he said it like that. But it's an Old Testament way of talking. It sounds Old Covenant-like. This promise is for you and for your children. And I get it. I see that. But but I'm not trying to be snarky. we got to finish the verse. we got to finish the verse. This is Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you, that's group one, and for your children, that's group two, and then group three, and for all who are far off, that would be the Gentiles in this text. And then he clarifies it. Is this for... Is everyone in the crowd repenting and believing and being baptized? Is every child here to be baptized? Is everyone far off going to be saved here? No, no, no. no. Here's what he says. The promise is for you, for your, for, for your children, for all who are far off. And then he clarifies. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then a few verses later, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's not for it's not everyone in the crowd who's going to be repenting, believing, and being baptized. It's everyone in the crowd whom the Lord calls to himself. The effectual call, the, the, the effective call of God, the sovereign call of God, like Lazarus from the tomb, come forth. And that, that, that it affected the salvation of 3,000 people that day, but it wasn't everybody. And then it says, for your children. And the, the answer is yes. It's available to any child who the Lord calls to himself and repents and believes and then therefore is baptized. And then, yeah, for those who are far off, yeah, the Gentiles, which I'm a Gentile, most of you listening are Gentiles. Yes, but is, is every Gentile repenting, believing, being baptized? No. For every Gentile who's far off, whom the Lord calls to himself. 
So again here, it's not indiscriminately all covenant children should receive the covenant sign. That's not what this verse is teaching. It's saying everyone whom the Lord calls to himself savingly and sovereignly, those are the ones who repent, who believe, who are baptized. Okay, now let's look at the household baptisms in the book of Acts because th these, these are very important. This is a big part of the conversation. It's not the only part of the conversation, but we need to talk about these. This will take several minutes. I think it is worth every moment we give here. So let's start with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. If you could turn with me, Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is a non-Jew who is a God-fearer. In other words, he respects the Jewish God, but is not yet saved. That is, that is absolutely my, my take on, on him. But let's look at some verses here. Acts 10 verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian co cohort, a devout man who feared God with, his, with all his household. So I'm talking about household baptisms, right? Cornelius feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Um, if you skip down to verse 24, on the following day, they, Peter, and others entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called them together, uh, had called together his relatives and close friends. So now you've got his relatives and close friends. His household, sounds like, is, is here present for Peter. Look at verse 43. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to stay with them for some days. So you have here... Cornelius' household fears God. He gathers all of his relatives, which seems to be his household together, and they're, they're all baptized. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? But this is not at all an argument that unbelieving infants in Cornelius' home were baptized. How do I know that? Well, number one, we're told in verse 2 that the household, everyone in the household feared God. I'm sorry, a three-month-old, a six-month-old does not know enough, is not able to fear God, not even able to understand the concept of God. So this already is implying that we're dealing with a household that's older than infants because they hold, they all feared God. But then we're told that the that they that they were filled with the Spirit, that they heard the Word of God, that they started speaking in tongues and extolling God, and those individuals who received the Spirit were baptized. Again, verse 47 of chapter 10, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Three-month-olds don't, don't receive the Spirit, speak in tongues, and believe in Jesus. But everyone in this household who was baptized received the Spirit, and they were even speaking in tongues, and they were baptized. If that's not enough, chapter 11, verse 14. Um, yeah, so Peter says that... Uh, uh, or Peter, uh, Cornelius is told that uh, Peter will declare to him a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. In other words, the household here that's getting baptized is also getting saved. These are people who are saved. And how are you saved in this text? Well, we're told earlier that whoever believes in Jesus receives from forgiveness of sins. So the household of Cornelius is saved. That's why they're baptized. And they speak in the Holy, they speak from the Holy Spirit. These are people who believed. Uh, verse 17 of Acts 11, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I think the Cornelius story, yes, there's a household baptism, but it's crystal clear. Everyone in the household who was baptized heard the good news, repented of sin, believed in Jesus, and was filled with the Spirit, spoke in tongues. Now, we could get into why they spoke in tongues. That's a unique situation in Acts. But however you see it, these are not infants. These are people old enough to comprehend, believe, and be filled with the Spirit and repent of sin. So I do not think Cornelius' household baptism is an example of infant baptism. Next example is in uh, Acts 16. I will grant you, this is the only one of all the household baptisms that doesn't make explicitly clear exactly who was baptized. And so it's an argument from silence. I, I would not want to stake my whole belief on this one text because it doesn't tell you one way or the other. 
Lydia, remember Lydia, the seller of purple goods, purple clothes? This is what it says. Acts 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, come stay in my house. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia was converted. God called her, right? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to Paul. And she was converted, and she was baptized, and her whole household was baptized. But we are not told details of of uh, of any more than that. We're not told uh, um, who exactly in the household was baptized, and whether they were believers or not. So that, that at least is a silent argument. But we should not take the less clear and more silent texts and use them to trump the more clear and explicit texts. So let's look at the other household baptisms, because these are not unclear. Later in the same chapter, you have another household baptism. This is the famous Philippian jailer. Remember Paul and Silas singing hymns at midnight, earthquake. Jailer comes in, thinks the prisoners have escaped. He's going to throw himself on his own sword to commit suicide. Paul comes in. Paul cried out with a loud voice. This is Acts 16, 28. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Jailer rushes in. Sir, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16, 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. Well, there you go. The Philippian jailer is converted, and then his whole family is baptized the same night he is. That sounds like it includes infant baptism. I mean... Probably this guy may have had infants, and it doesn't tell us. Well, let's slow down. I don't think this includes infants. I don't think this includes infant baptism. Let's start with this. Verse 31, He said, Peter says, Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and all your household. What does that imply? The Philippian jailer will be saved by believing in Jesus. How will the household be saved? Not a different way, the same way, by believing in Jesus. So everyone in this household who becomes a believer, which is everybody, they must have believed in Jesus. But if you don't believe that, let's keep reading. Verse 34, then he, the jailer, brought them, Paul and Silas, up into his house and set food before them. Now listen, and he rejoiced, the jailer rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Okay. The jailer rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I think this text is explicit. Three-month-olds do not rejoice when their dad converts to Christianity. Six-month-old, 12-month-old, 18-month-olds don't have enough mental ability to rejoice with their father that he became a believer in Jesus. So when we're told here that the entire household rejoiced, when he became a believer, that means the entire household was old enough to understand what was happening to their dad, and they rejoiced. Why did they rejoice? The whole family became believers that day. The family was rejoicing in the salvation that came through it through their father to their father, and the whole family was baptized. This is not infant baptism. This is clearly believer's baptism. It just so happens to be that the whole family was converted on the same day, and therefore they were all baptized together on the same day. Let's go to Acts chapter 18. Crispus is the next household baptism, Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So you have implied here a household baptism. Um, but it's clearly a baptism of believers. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. It's not just the household was baptized, the entire household believed. This is believer's baptism. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. This is not unbeliever's baptism, this is believer's baptism. So Crispus' family was uh, it, it implies that Crispus's family was all baptized, but it's crystal clear they were all believers when that happened. 
Okay, one more. First Corinthians to the right here. First Corinthians chapter one. And this one had puzzled me for a while until I discovered a verse that I didn't know about uh, a number of years ago. So first Corinthians chapter one, look at verse 16. Paul says this, I did not baptize all, or excuse me, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So here it is. Here's the last household baptism that I'm aware of. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. And if that's all we had, we, we wouldn't know. Does this include infants? Does it not? It just says, I baptized the household of Stephanus, and a, and a, and a pedo-baptist might say, see, that seems to imply infant baptism. But let me quote R.C. Sproul one more time. About one-fourth of the baptisms mentioned in the New Testament indicate that entire households were baptized. This strongly suggests, though it does not prove, that infants were included among those baptized. So far, we have seen that it does not strongly imply that infants were baptized. In fact, every time except Lydia, which we just don't know, the other examples of Cornelius and the jailer and Crispus are explicit that they are believers filling the household who are baptized. No unbelieving infants being baptized. But what about this one? Stephanus's whole household was baptized by Paul. We don't know any more information about them. Or do we? It took me a while to discover that at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul again mentions Stephanus's household. This blew me away when I first discovered this. I'll be honest, I discovered it on the morning I was preaching on this topic three years, three or so years ago, uh, which was a, it was a great discovery to find the morning before the sermon, the morning of the sermon, excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Now, do you hear that? Literally, that the household of Stephanus was the first fruits in Achaia, the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Um, the first converts would not include six-month-old infants, and... Um, Six-month-old infants don't tend to devote themselves to the service of the saints. No, this is very clear. Uh, Paul is saying that Stephanus, yeah, the whole household was converted, and then they were baptized, and then the whole household devoted themselves to the, to the, to the uh, service of the saints. This cannot imply unbelieving infants being baptized and devoting themselves to the service of the saints. Again, when, it, when we get the details on household baptism, which is, which is uh, one two, three, four. Four out of the five household baptisms in the New Testament is explicit that it only includes believers within the household. Only one in five, which is Lydia, doesn't tell us one way or the other. So to base your whole argument, R.C. Sproul, who I love, to base your whole argument on one silent example from Lydia is unbelievably weak foundation because you don't interpret the less clear text uh, you, you don't you don't use the less clear text to interpret the clear text you use the clear text to interpret the less clear text and if four of the five household baptisms are explicitly of believers only then you don't allow the one household baptism story that isn't clear whether it's believers or infants or whatever you don't allow the silent one to trump the four clear ones that would be a bad um, example of uh, biblical hermeneutics. So we don't, we don't. I, I think it's crystal clear that the examples here are believers only that are being baptized. Uh, there is no clear evidence. Uh, it does not, as, as Sproul said, strongly suggest um, that infants were included among those baptized. Just the opposite. It strongly suggests just the opposite, and it's explicit in that in four of the five of the stories. Let's look at First Corinthians seven, since we're in First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 13 and 14 is often used for the infant baptism view. This is how it goes. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 7, 13, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So, here you have it. You've got, uh, say, a husband who's a Christian, his wife is not a Christian, and they have children, and it says that children are holy because of the 
believing father, even though there's an unbelieving mother. So here you have a clear example, an infant baptism person would say, here you have a clear example that even if just one parent is a Christian, even if it's just the wife, the wife is a Christian, the husband's not a Christian, you know, back in those days, the, the wife would tend to default to the religion of her husband. And here, she's not. She's a Christian, he's not. He denies Jesus, she affirms and, 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 and confesses Jesus as Lord, and they have children. Paul says, even if just the, the wife is a Christian, the husband's not, the children are holy. Well, if the children are holy because of the faith of their parent or parents, then surely this implies that you give the covenant sign of baptism to those children. It, it clearly uh, it seems to be affirming covenant theology, uh, a Presbyterian view of covenant theology, that, that these children are holy because of the parents. I don't think that's what this text is teaching at all. In this passage, you have uh, spouses who are beginning to want to divorce their unbelieving Spouses. So, so here's what's happening. Here's what I think is happening in this text. You have uh, a couple who are married as pagans. Paul comes and preaches the gospel in Corinth. The husband converts and the wife doesn't. And now they're already married. So then the husband's thinking, I should probably divorce my wife because I'm a Christian. She's not. Uh, you know, Paul says things like, whoever unites with a prostitute makes themselves one body with that person, and you shouldn't bring the Lord into sexual morality. And they're thinking, well, I'm not. I, my spouse is not even a believer. And if I were to have a sexual relationship with my spouse that produces children, well, does that mean my children are born, like, sort of defiled? Is, is, are they coming from some sort of, sort of sinful act? And maybe I should even divorce my spouse altogether. And we'll look in Ezra, that in the book of Ezra, this is kind of similar to what happens in Ezra, where people were married to idolatrous spouses, and they sin their spouse, they divorce their spouses. And we, we'll talk about that later. So they may have even been thinking of the story in Ezra 9 and 10, where that happens. Um, but Paul says no. In the New Covenant era, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, you stay married unless the unbeliever wants to leave. And he says, let me argue, your spouse is actually sanctified by your presence rather than you being defiled by the unbelieving spouse in the relationship. Sleeping with your unbelieving spouse is not a sin. The children produced of that act are not defiled. They are holy. And uh, so I, I think that's simply what Paul's saying. But if it does mean that you baptize the, um, the, the children of a believer, it also should mean that you would have to baptize the non-Christian spouse, adult spouse of the believer, because it says the, the spouse is made holy because you're a believer and the children are made holy because you're a believer. And that doesn't make any sense. So if, if the children being made holy means they should be baptized, then the unbelieving spouse being made holy should also mean they're baptized, if you're going to be consistent. But that doesn't make any sense, and I don't know anyone who argues for that position. So I don't think 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about that at all. So let's get into the more positive argument here uh, uh, for believers' baptism. Let's start with Romans chapter 6. And this is not a text I would want to put my whole argument on, but it just makes an important point. Romans 6, uh, listen to this. Uh, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I know not everyone will agree with this, but I think this text is compelling for mode of baptism being immersion. Listen to this again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were what? Baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And then we were raised to newness of life. I, th I think this text is a strong argument for total immersion as the proper mode of baptism. The word in Greek, baptizo, can mean immerse, it can mean pour. It can mean it can mean various things when it comes to water. Although it normally does mean something like immerse, it doesn't have to mean immerse. But that's the normal meaning of the word. I think that's what it does mean in baptism text. But here, I think it's explicit. Think about it. You were buried with him by baptism into death. That that says baptism represents burial into death. Well, why is it that your body goes as we do it today? You go backwards completely submerged in the water. The water represents God's judgment and death. You go backwards down into the water. You're completely covered. You are buried with Christ in baptism. Symbolically, your body is buried under the waters of baptism, and then you rise to newness of life. Immersion is the perfect picture of what's being talked about here. You're buried with Christ by baptism into his death, and now you are raised to newness of life. Well, pouring does not picture that. 
Sprinkling certainly does not picture that. How does sprinkling represent burial with Christ in death? How does uh, sprinkling represent raising to newness of life? How does pouring represent burial with Christ uh, by death? Let me read the exact phrase. Uh, all of us have been baptized into Christ. We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. How does baptism bury you into death if it's sprinkling? And how, do you, how are you raised to newness of life through sprinkling, even if symbolically so? You're not. But with baptism being immersion, you are perfectly pictorially buried under the waters, a picture of death and burial, and then you are raised to newness of life, a perfect picture of resurrection. So I, I think that uh, this is not the most important part of the argument, but I think the New Testament clearly teaches immersion. Uh, you think of the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, and uh, they're traveling through the through the through the the road to uh to uh is it is it Gaza the Gaza road where is this and uh yeah the the road going down from Jerusalem to Gaza a desert place and when the eunuch is converted he says see here is water what prevents me from being baptized and he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him and when they came up out of the water the spirit of the lord carried Philip away now i know you could say came up out of the water doesn't have to mean came up out of the literal water. It could mean they went down to the river or something or down to a spring of water, and then they came back up from the spring. But um, it's interesting. The eunuch says, look, there's water for me to be baptized. The actual phrase, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So they went down into the water, and they came up out of the water. I think the most natural reading of this is immersion. But here's why I say that. The eunuch, who is a rich man, treasurer, you know, he's the treasurer for the queen, Candace in Africa, uh, he's made this massive journey with an entourage, no doubt, up to Jerusalem. He's going back now. He's bought, uh, or he owns a scroll of Isaiah, which would have been unbelievably expensive. To have your own copy of Isaiah is outrageous. No one had their own copy of Bible books. This guy's got his own. He's a rich man, which means he's going to have enough food and water with him on the travel home to keep him alive so that he can survive. And guess what? He had plenty of water, I'm sure, preserved. Is there going to go going many, many miles through the desert down into Africa, they've got plenty of water. They're carrying water. I guarantee you they're, they're hauling water with them. They had plenty of water for a sprinkling, carrying the water with them. They had plenty of water even for pouring that he was carrying with them. Why does he say, look, here over here is some water. We can go down into it and be baptized and then come back up again because they need enough water, not just to sprinkle, not just to pour. He needed enough water to be immersed. And that's why the water he was carrying with him for the travel through the desert from Gaza down to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Gaza, was not enough water. He needed a spring or a river or a creek or something that he could actually get down in and be, be, be immersed in, is my take on that. Anyways, let's keep moving. I don't want to get bogged down on the form of baptism. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. If you look at Galatians chapter 3, you have a great text here on baptism. I think this one argues for believers' baptism quite strongly. This is what it says. For in This is Galatians 3.26. Well, let me start earlier, just so you get the flow. Galatians 3.24 So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Do you hear the emphasis on faith, believers, right? Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heirs according to promise. Now, this is crucial. Look at verses 26 and 27 one more time. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Who are the people who are baptized in Galatians 3? They're believers. In verse 24, you've been justified by faith. That's believing. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you're all sons of God through faith. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Every baptized person in this text is a believer, and every baptized person in this text has put on Christ. That means we're not talking about six-month-olds or three-week-olds, because they have not believed and they have not put on Christ. But here Paul says, he doesn't say most of you who were baptized have put on Christ, except for the infants who were baptized. 
He doesn't say that. He says, as many of you as were baptized have put on Christ. The exact group of baptized people is the same group of people who've put on Christ, which is another way of talking about becoming a Christian or believing or being justified by faith or uh, being Abraham's true offspring, which also is by faith in this chapter. I think this is very strong that he's talking about baptism, which is only reserved for believers. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, near the back of our New Testaments. 1 Peter chapter 3. And this is a verse that sometimes um, I've heard, you know, sometimes... uh, Protestants will, will shy away from this verse because it's so strong in the way it speaks of baptism saving you, and it could sound like it's it's supporting a more of a Lutheran or Catholic perspective or something like that on baptism. I, I don't think it does, uh, of course, but um, let, let's look at it. I don't want to shy away from this verse because it has a difficult phrase. This is 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, and um, it's a difficult paragraph. We won't get into all the details, but it just it's it here's what it says. It speaks of God's patience. This is first Peter 3:20, middle of the verse. It speaks about when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Or they were Noah and his family, the eight on the ark, were saved through water. They were brought safely through water, the water being God's wrath or judgment. And then Peter sees a typology here. Noah and the ark is a type. Christian baptism is the antitype. That's actually the word I believe he uses here is the word antitupos in Greek, the word antitype in Greek. So listen to this. So, the days of Noah, the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water, were brought safely through water. Then, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. Baptism now saves you. I believe that as Peter has these words pinned, Peter knows as soon as those words come out of his mouth or are written out through his pen, baptism now saves you. I think Peter knows there's a danger that this will be misunderstood as the waters of baptism have a saving quality, that they are not in any way symbolic. They are actual. They are the actual way you get saved. Baptism saves you. Justification by baptism. That's what it sounds like, right? So as soon as Peter pins those words or has his amanuenses pin those words, he immediately says, ah, let's add this phrase, not the removal of dirt from the body. Not as a baptism, which corresponds to Noah's flood, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, the physical act of baptism does not save you. You you see what he's saying? As soon as he says baptism saves you, he goes, I don't mean that there's magic in the water. I don't mean that you are saved, literally justified by getting wet. That's not what I mean. I'm not talking about the removal of dirt from the body saving you. That's that's not what I mean. He's not teaching baptismal regeneration like the Catholic Church tragically and heretically does. That's not what he's teaching. The Catholic Church teaches that infants who are baptized are washed of original sin and enter into a state of grace and then have to, of course, maintain that over time. Of course, Presbyterians would never teach that. Uh, God forbid. They, they would teach that it's simply uh, a symbol. It is not in any way saving or, or effective in that sense. But however you look at it, here's the point. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the physical act. Not the removal of dirt from the body. Now, let me just pause and add a footnote. If sprinkling was the right mode of baptism, it would be strange Peter would refer to sprinkling as a removal of of dirt from the body. How much dirt gets removed from the body by a light sprinkling of water on the head? I just watched, I mean, I'm not trying to make fun. I I watched um, uh, a PCA church's service yesterday, at least some of it, and they had a whole bunch of kids come to the front and some of them were baptized. And I I saw the pastor take a little tiny bit of water in his hand and from a bowl and puts it on a girl's head and I mean, barely enough to even wet her hair. And that was considered a baptism. That, I'm not trying to be mean, not trying to be nitpicky, That simply doesn't make sense out of what Peter says right here. Peter says, baptism is not merely the removal of dirt from the body, but but it is a removal of dirt from the body, but that's not what saves you. So 
how much dirt gets removed from the body by sprinkling? Virtually none. How much from pouring? Not much more. Removal of dirt from the body sounds like a bath, doesn't it? A removal of dirt from the body. Water removing dirt from the body sounds like a bath. It sounds like total immersion. So, again, Peter's picture of baptism matches with Paul's. It is a burial with Christ. It's a resurrection. It's a complete immersion in water. It's, it's, it, it has the potential of removing dirt from the whole body. But that, again, that's a footnote. Let me get back to the main point. Here is the crucial point that I think supports believers' baptism very importantly. Let me read it again. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but what? But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The person being baptized in the baptism is not getting saved by getting wet. It's not the physical removal of dirt from the body that saves you. What is it that saves you? It's what the baptism is representing inwardly that saves. What is it representing inwardly? You're appealing to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, you are appealing to God for a good conscience. You're, you're, you're giving your life to God. You're asking God to give you a good conscience to help you follow him, to be devoted to him as Lord. That's what you're doing in the act of baptism. And notice, baptism is an outward way of committing yourself totally to the Lord. Baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A father cannot do that for his infant son or daughter. A mother cannot do that on behalf of an infant son or daughter. The person being baptized is the one appealing to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if a person is not a believer, then they can't appeal to God for a good conscience in their baptism, which means they can't be baptized. You can call it infant baptism, but it's no such thing. Infant baptism does not exist. Unbelievers baptism doesn't exist because the definition of baptism and, and, and I've heard a New Testament scholar say that this 1 Peter 3.21 is the closest you get to a definition of baptism in the whole Bible. I think Romans 6 is similar. But here, here's the definition. It's appealing to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's something the individual baptizee, the one being baptized, is doing. It is committing your whole life to God. It's, it's kind of like, I, I've often used the ring on the finger in a wedding as an analogy here. When I take the ring, my wedding ring off, which I've just done, if you're listening to this, um, that does not make me unmarried to Kelly. And when I put it on, it doesn't magically make me married. I, I wore this ring before our wedding to make sure it fit, right? And on the day of our wedding, uh, Kelly put it on, but I've taken, I've taken the ring off many times since then, obviously, although I wear it almost all the time. But this, this right here is a public outward symbol of an inward reality. I have made vows to a woman. I am married to Kelly. This is a lifelong commitment till death do us part. And, and that's what this ring is saying outwardly, publicly. But it's kind of like me saying, this ring makes me married. And then as soon as you say that, it sounds like you know, baptism saves you. This ring makes me married. Well, no, not the putting of, of a ring on my finger, but my vows before God and man and my wife, right? Do, do you see the analogy here? Baptism saves you, not the physical getting wet in the in, in, in the river or, or wherever, not, 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 the, not the removal of dirt from the body. No, the appeal to God, the pledge to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is an outward representation of your inward commitment to the Lord. And it's the inward commitment to the resurrected Lord that is truly connecting you to Christ and saving you. And the outward sign of it is baptism. Similarly, it's the vows before God and man that make you married. That's what marries you. That's what's making you actually married. But the ring is a representation of it and can be spoken of as representing those vows. That's exactly what the ring is made to do. Okay, Colossians chapter 2. We'll go backwards here. Colossians chapter 2 is another critical text. And uh, John Piper spent some years working on his, I guess it was, I don't know if it was a PhD or whatever. It was, it was his doctoral degree uh, in Germany. And he was the only uh, Baptist in the whole group with you know, his, uh, with professors and a lot of learned students, and he was the only Baptist around. And so he said there was one day where he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a professor, and he said it was like David versus Goliath, because it was, the deck was stacked against him as the only Baptist around. But Piper said this was the verse he kept going to in his debate in Germany. 
And it was not a verse I'd ever thought of, frankly, as a, as a pro-Baptist verse, but I see it that way now very much so. So let me start by saying this verse is often used by infant baptism uh, people, paedo-baptists, to support their view, but I think it's exactly the reverse. I think it actually supports believers' baptism. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, at first glance, this may seem to support the Presbyterian view, because it, it, it does something that the that the Pado-Baptist argument, the infant baptism argument, insists on, which is the connection between circumcision, remember the old covenant sign, the bloody sign, and baptism, the new covenant sign, the bloodless cleansing sign. And it puts these two covenant signs in the same sentence. And it seems to, therefore, create an incredible continuity between circumcision and baptism, which would seem to support the higher continuity view of the Presbyterian side. So listen again. <clears throat> in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Do you see how closely circumcision and baptism are put together in this verse? You were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So it, it seems to put a very close connection between circumcision and baptism, which very much seems to support the pedo baptism view, the infant baptism view. But I, I actually don't think, I don't think, after a more careful study, that, that it actually does support that. Um, here's why. This is crucial. Number one, in the New Covenant era, circumcision still matters, but not physical circumcision, inward circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, which is different from the outward sign of circumcision. Circumcision of the heart, that is circumcision without hands, by the putting off the body of the flesh, that kind of circumcision represents regeneration. I'll tell you that because the verse 13 says this, Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in trespasses, that's unregenerate, not born again, dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So being dead in sin and being uncircumcised spiritually is the same thing. It's to be un, an unbeliever, to be dead in sin, to not be born again. And he says, God made alive together with him, canceling, ha having forgiven you your trespasses, canceling the record of debt. So, the circumcision here is not physical circumcision, because it says circumcision made without hands, the circumcision of Christ. It's referring to inward circumcision, which only happens in the believer's heart. So that, that already, I think, is a push against the idea that we're talking about old covenant circumcision here. We're not. We're talking about regeneration, new covenant circumcision, circumcision of the heart. That's, that's important. But then I think there's a more important point right here. This is the one Piper talked about in Germany. Ha this is Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him, with Christ, in baptism, in which you also were raised with him. Now stop. Again, you've got baptism being pictured as a burial and a resurrection. Again, which fits immersion underwater and being raised out. But here's the crucial, crucial part. Having been buried with him in baptism, so you go under the water, in which you were also raised with him. And then here it is. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Through faith. I think this is crucial. Listen to it again. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. The person being baptized here, baptism is being defined here as something done to a believer. Def by definition, I don't want to sound arrogant. This is believer's baptism. Baptism is being defined as believer's baptism. It says here, you were buried with Christ in baptism, and you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. To do it through faith means through belief. That's faith baptism. It's believer's baptism. This does not mean the belief of the parents. It doesn't mean the faith. It doesn't say you were buried in baptism when you were an infant through the faith of your dad or through the faith of your mom. That's not what this text obviously is saying. 
circumcision is being used in this text to describe regeneration, which is not something an infant experiences. And it's also being used to describe someone who is buried with Christ in baptism and raised through faith. I'm sorry, this is not teaching that circumcision and baptism are virtually identical and that therefore how the old covenant sign was applied to infants, therefore the new covenant sign is applied to infants. No, just the opposite. It's saying the circumcision that now matters is regeneration, the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the flesh, the renewal of the inward man. And number two, the baptism, which is a burial with Christ, which is immersion and a raising to new life, which is coming out of the waters, is representative of what? What's happened to you through faith in the powerful working of God. This is believer's baptism. And actually, it's also believer's circumcision. Because the circumcision here is the kind of circumcision that only a regenerate, born-again person has. So, uh, I even though that's a text that is often used as a, as a big text for infant baptism, I think it supports just the opposite and does so very strongly. But we've got one last text to do, and we've already almost gone an hour. My goodness. Okay, let's go to Hebrews chapter 8, and I'll just go ahead and tell you that um, I had not seen... Uh, a number of the arguments I've already presented in this in this little message or whatever this is. Uh, I all right. Let's go to Hebrews chapter eight, and I will tell you that this this argument was maybe the most persuasive. Although I will say the arguments already presented, the ones that I've been walking through, I I really do think the arguments already presented are are sufficient to make me convictionally Baptist. But it was this next argument that was the turning point for me at two in the morning, listening to my iPod uh, in my dorm room, around, you know, in the middle of the night. Uh, it was this argument that really flipped the switch entirely for me, and I, I can honestly say I have not looked back once since this moment. I, I, had, I had gone back and forth, I don't know, at least half a dozen times, eight times, I had changed my mind. Infant baptism, believers. Infant believers. Infant, I had gone back, but, but after I heard this argument, it was like my conscience was settled and I don't think I've had a second, I don't think I've had a moment of doubt. I don't think, I don't think so, uh, since that happened. And that was, that was um, maybe around 2008. So I just haven't looked back since I heard this argument. So here, here it is. <clears throat> Remember, the, 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 R.C. Sproul said in his note that, he says this, the debate on questions surrounding, the, the debate centers on questions surrounding the meaning of baptism, and the degree of continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I completely agree with that. It centers on the meaning of baptism and the degree of continuity between the Old and New Covenant. And what I've already tried to show is the household baptisms do not imply infant baptism. Just the opposite. They imply believer's baptism. Every example explicitly of a baptism in the New Testament is done to a professing believer. Even Simon the magician, Simon Magus, who later ends up uh, essentially falling away from the faith... When he was baptized, he was baptized as someone who professed faith in Christ. He looked like a believer, even though he turned out not to be. Uh, certainly, we can we can baptize false converts, people who say that they're Christians, but we find out later or not. But we never knowingly baptize an unbeliever. That, 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 that's, that's clear in the New Testament. And you see that in, uh, in Romans 6, we clearly have immersion in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Galatians 3, it is those of faith that, who are baptized, which represents their being incorporated into Christ. In 1 Peter 3, we're being told that it is those who are appealing to God for a good conscience that are baptized. That's only believers. It's the, it's the pledge of their life to God, like a wedding ring is a pledge to your spouse. Colossians 2, circumcision is not physical circumcision. It's, it's regeneration, which is only for a believer. And baptism in, in Colossians 2, 12 is something that is done through faith in the one being baptized. It's explicitly believer's baptism. So I think I can rest the case right there. I think I've got enough to convince me personally that, that we're, it's believer's baptism. But this next one is big. So Sproul says the continuity and discontinuity between the two covenants is crucial, and I agree with him. Now let's look at, I think, an important factor of discontinuity between the covenants. Hebrews 8. This is what it says. Talking about the Old and New Covenant. As Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the Old, as the covenant he mediates is better. So the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. Why? since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, what are the promises that make the New Covenant better than the Old Covenant and therefore would show a kind of discontinuity between the covenants? Just hang with me here. Verse 7 of Hebrews 8. For if that first covenant, the Old Covenant, 
had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second or a new covenant. For he finds fault with them, the people, when he says, and then here's the longest quote uh, in the, uh, it's, it's right, where am I? Here we go. The longest quotation uh, of the Old Testament, the New Testament, starts here, it goes uh, all the way up to here, Proverbs, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand uh, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So what's wrong with the old covenant? The people in the majority won't stay faithful. They did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant, this is the covenant that I made with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So here's the, here's the new covenant. This is what makes the new covenant better. This is why the new covenant has better promises. Here are the better promises of the new covenant. Ready? Quote, God says, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them, the laws, on their hearts. Now stop. What is that? That's regeneration. Writing God's law on your mind and on your heart means giving you the desire and the will to obey God is something only a regenerate person has. So notice God's going to regenerate his people. He goes on, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's salvation here. Look at verse 11. It's even clearer. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. That is, be saved. Know the Lord means savingly know the Lord. They, they won't have to teach each other, know the Lord. Be, become a true believer. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Here it is. In the Old Covenant, What's the fundamental difference between the Old and New Covenant that makes the New Covenant better than the Old? It's right here in this text. In the New Covenant, every member of the covenant community will be genuinely born again and regenerated. How do I know that? Because he says everyone is going to have the law written on their mind and on their heart. That's regeneration, right? That's regeneration. They desire to do God's will, which only comes from a new nature. And they shall not have to teach their neighbor or their brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And they're all going to be forgiven of their sins. Okay. This is, I used to use plates to do this. I'm going to use little post-it notes. If you can, look, if you can see this, I'm holding up a post-it note with a black dot in it, okay? And if this post-it note represents the people of Israel, the black dot represents the few faithful. We'll call them the remnant, right? In Elijah's day, Elijah said, I alone am left. And the Lord said, no, actually there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But that's 7,000 out of what? Hundreds of thousands out of millions? So the remnant was always a small dot, a small dot in a larger area. So if that is the regenerate people who know the Lord truly, who have his law written on their heart and on their mind, whose sins are truly forgiven, who love the Lord, then all the rest of this, this area, this large area here, is unregenerate people in Israel. Wouldn't you agree that the majority of Israel was unregenerate throughout most of their history? Most of their kings were terrible. Most of their people did not know the Lord. The wilderness generation, how many of them lived through to make it into the promised land? Two, Joshua and Caleb. The vast majority of them fell in the wilderness because they were not truly believers. First Corinthians 10, they left Egypt led by Moses, but they fell in the wilderness into sin. And Hebrews 3 and 4 makes the same point. They, 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 walked, they left with Moses, but they fell under judgment. So, the, the, what was the problem with the Old Covenant people? What, what was the problem? The problem was it allowed unregenerate people in the covenant people. So th this whole group is God's covenant people. The vast majority of them are unbelievers and unfaithful. Only the small remnant stays faithful. So if God wants to fix this problem, what should he do? He should, now this is going to be hard to see. You got another sticky note here. It's supposed to be totally black. I don't have time to color it all in. So what God should do is to fix the problem. It's very simple. Instead of just having a little black dot of faithful people, you want the whole group of people to be completely the black dot. You want the, 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 the black area to take over the whole page. So instead of just a little remnant, you want the whole group to be faithful. Is that making sense? So um, if you're listening, I'm holding up a sheet that should be totally solid black, but it's not totally solid, but it should be. So God, God, now why is it that so many people in the old covenant were in the covenant people, but not born again? And why is it in the new covenant, every single person will know the Lord from the least to the greatest? Why is there such a difference? How did God fix the problem? And the answer is in the old covenant, how did you get into the covenant people? How did the, how did 99 
percent of the people get into the covenant people. They were born into it. And therefore, they received. They, they were literally born into it. If you're born to, a, to Israelite parents, you are in the covenant people, whether you believe in Yahweh or not, whether you're faithful to Yahweh or not, whether you worship idols or not, you're in the covenant people by birth. And so if you're in the covenant people by birth, how, when should you receive the covenant sign of circumcision? Soon after birth. A week after you're born, you receive the covenant sign. If God wants to fix that and make everyone in the covenant a genuine believer, what should God do? God should, let me put it this way. You get into the old covenant how? By physical birth. And therefore you receive the covenant sign when? At physical birth. In the new covenant, God is changing something. This is discontinuity, dissimilarity to the old covenant. Sproul's argument and the infant baptism argument hangs on similarity between circumcision and baptism between the old covenant and the new covenant. But I say the very point of dissimilarity is the very point where this debate hangs. We believe in the old covenant, you get in by physical birth and you receive the covenant sign at physical birth. In the new covenant, you get in by spiritual rebirth, and therefore you receive the covenant sign upon spiritual rebirth. And I think that if you get that argument, I think you get an extremely strong argument in favor of believers' baptism. All right, thank you guys for listening.